Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf and LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi, Eric. Hello, Eric. So now we have our third and final installment from our long series of L.A. Times Festival of Books interviews. And today we have Erica Jong, the author of The World Began With Yes, and also an interview with Susan Choi, the author of Trust Exercise. Have you guys ever read Fear of Flying, Kate? Did you ever read it? No. <laughs> However, um, I know the, the term that that book popularized, which is the zipless fuck. What is that? Do you know what that is? I'm actually not sure. <laughs> is that when you have sex without having any panties on? Yeah, no. or maybe it's like your jeans button rather than zip. I think it's love with a stranger where you don't even have to. Oh, oh, oh like no strings attached. No, or, or, or like more literal. Way to not even take off your clothes. Oh. Oh. Okay. Well, that's very exciting. Does this involve? Does this involve harm to a garment? <laughs> Because <laughs> that I don't know if I can be in favor of. Huh. You do prize your garments. I do prize my garments. Wow, I yeah. didn't even realize that. But I'm seeing it now that you say it. You are you are so well dressed. We should say we don't talk about this yes. with Erica Jong in, in our current interview. We talk more about um, grandmother power. So it's it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a different Erica Jong. The tone is different. The tone yeah. is a little different. But I think there's still some sex in there. There is some still. Yes, there's some. Totally. And then after that, we'll be able to, um, readers will be treated to our conversation with Susan Choi. Who wrote Trust Exercise. Right. And she was just another delight. And so Ah, we talked about how one builds trust, how one builds an identity in high school. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm still not there with the trust thing. That's an exercise I'm still very much in the middle of. We should go... And I'll, I'll catch you. You'll fall and I'll catch. That sounds good. By the way, definitely that particular trust exercise. I still to this day, even my husband can't make me do that. Really? Yeah. I will always stutter and like try to hold myself oh, back or open are, my eyes. What about your co-host? It would probably be the same. Are you worried about We're getting your clothes dirty? And it's not that. Yeah, no, it's not that. It's actually, I worry. In fact, I probably would trust either of you to do it. I don't trust yeah, my be husband because he's 100% an imp. And I worry that he would try to play a prank on me by like letting me fall. Um, I agree. I also wouldn't trust Dan. <laughs> but I would trust the two of you. All right. Beautiful. Well, without further ado, let's get to that conversation. Okay. Erica Jong barely needs an introduction. She's a novelist and a poet, author of 26 books, including the legendary feminist book Fear of Flying, which she published in 1973. Her latest book is a collection of poetry called The World Began With Yes. Thank you so much for coming, Erica. Thank you. Um, so I, I wanted to start by asking you about your political involvement, and because you've obviously been involved in for quite some time. Yes. And what is driving you right now in terms of politics and, well, and your involvement? I'm a I'm a lifelong feminist. Uh, my mother and grandmother were feminists. That's lucky. I my fe- I got feminism with my mother's milk. You know, <laughs> she, my mother was a painter. She was told when she was in art school that she was the best painter in her class, but she would not get the Prix de Rome because she was a woman. Oh wow! And I grew up knowing that and knowing I was put on earth to change that. 
Wow. <laughs> Whatever. That's a tall order. Now, now, is that something your mother articulated to you? Or did no, you just feel it? she told me women were never treated equally, mm-hmm. particularly as artists and politicians, and that we had to keep struggling, that the vote was not enough, that we didn't have the Equal Rights Amendment, that we needed a lot more, that we didn't have equal pay. And my whole life as a writer has proved it. I mean, when Fear of Flying came out in 73, male writers went to the barricades calling me a mammoth pudenda and things like that. And now, years later, the book is a classic, but it was really hard to live through. But what was it like to what was it like to live through actually? Oh, first of all, to be famous for sex in America yeah. starting in the 70s is weird because we're still a very puritan country. Yeah. And people are never comfortable with this. And I had the curious experience of being beloved in France in Germany in now more in England than in the beginning when they were very puritanical. Uh-huh. And now my books are published in Arabic and Mandarin and people say to me how did you have the nerve so I've gone from being a rebel to an icon Mm. (laughs) I I wonder also like how are you processing then with everything that you've said before and these kind of long view that you take of feminist politics and feminist art right how are you processing the present moment where it feels like and perhaps it always has felt like this that they're always up for renegotiation like that there's always rebellion. the threat of you know, throwing back states all over our 50 states are putting all kinds of repercussions on pregnancy mm-hmm. and we don't see it because it's at the state level can't have an abortion after week 20. The so-called heartbeat laws. Women don't even know they're pregnant at that time. Right. You have to bury the fetus, the aborted fetus. I have lived through so many years of the woman that I can hardly believe what's happened. But I've come to believe that the Trump administration is an angry reaction against the Obama presidency. Mm. Sure. How do you focus your activism and, and kind of, how does it, do you make a point in your writing to express your politics? I think it's, does it come it's, out? All, it's in all my books, novels, poems, whatever. It's there. I mean, because if you're a feminist, you understand you're connected with every other movement for equality. And I always have been. I mean, starting in my childhood. I was lucky enough in the 50s to go to a high school that was integrated, the High School of Music and Art, because kids were chosen on their talent. So we had a multiracial school. Mm -hmm. But it's horrifying to me that the Trump administration came as a reaction to the wonder of Obama. what will be our next move? I don't know. No, but actually, I'm very active. I mean, my daughter is in the, on the board of the Arena Democrats. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in swing left, arena, okay. all kinds of, and that's where I send my money. Mm. And those are the organizations I speak for. And, and, and in this book in particular, how have you expressed, have you expressed the present moment one of the most moving uh, poems in this book 
is about a dead little boy from Syria found abandoned on Sappho's beach. And we are, you know, we're living in, a, in an age of refugees. Yeah. yeah. Unacknowledged. And we're not dealing with it very well. Yeah. And people are very afraid. And children are dying. When historians look back, they will see this is an age of immigration. And people are immigrating because of climate change. Syria subjected to climate change. And the, the people who, are, who don't understand, like the idiot in the White House, they can't solve the problem because they don't understand what the problem is. And don't want to understand it. That's another understand. big part of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I am very, I'm a big supporter of Mayor Pete, oh. although I don't know if he can win. Really? Yeah. I don't know if America is ready for a gay president, but we'll see. And how about a woman? I don't think we are. Look at the way Hillary was slandered for 30 years until she made way for Trump, who does everything much worse than any Clinton yeah. ever did. Yeah. Um, the sexism in our society, the fear of the other, whether the other is gay or of a different color, mm-hmm. is appalling to me. Something that I wonder is how do you find, when, you, when you're faced by, with something like that photograph of the Syrian child mm-hmm. or something as massive as misogyny, how do you write against something like that? Because it feels, it, it can feel so big or it can feel you, so You have to write it from the heart. Mm-hmm. You can't write from a, 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 um, a political position that's a cliché. You have to write from the way it makes you feel. Uh-huh. And how did that make you feel? How did seeing those images make you feel? Well, you know, when you become a grandmother, every child in the world is your child. Mm. It, it's a transformation. And you feel that you were put on earth to help this situation. Yeah. And uh, the grandmother effect, I call it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Something else that I wanted to ask you, this is sort of related to you becoming a grandmother, is you also wrote a book called Fear of Dying mm-hmm. as, a, as a kind of um, follow-up to mm-hmm. your earlier book. Um, how do you think about age, aging in the current moment, um, and writing about it? Women um, are meant to live a very long time because it takes at least two generations of women to raise big-brained babies. Okay. You also see the grandmother effect in elephants, where the grandmothers nurture the calves. Oh. You see it in whales, where you'll see a grandma whale guiding a little male or female whale calf. We are meant to live a long time because it takes that long to raise human babies. That's so interesting. And it's called the grandmother effect. And now we have women anthropologists who are looking at how we survived as a species and they view it differently from the way the men did the men saw the men of the tribe bring home a big dead animal and everyone well that was not the case it was the grandmother digging for tubers that helped us survive (laughs) (laughs) so grandmothers are very important to human survival and grandfathers as well 
That's that's um, that's fascinating. And you you mentioned earlier that your grandmother was a feminist. Yes. Now, how well, did she how came did that from the vote generation? Ah, okay. the She only yeah. went to women doctors and dentists. That's really? how she expressed it. But I think all thinking people who read, who think about the survival of the human race, who don't want to be um, governed by cliches, we look at these things and we understand that we, are, we have to survive on this planet. We don't have planet B. Yeah, that's true, <laughs> unfortunately, or fortunately. Now, it, uh, we've talked a lot about wreckage. <laughs> Right. In this conversation, right. right? Right. So, where are moments, and maybe it's in your grandchildren? Like, where do you locate moments of utopian possibility or like forward dawning hope in your life? Um, Is you, that in your writing, or do you well, find it in your life as well? My favorite novel, Fanny, Hack About Jones, um, ends in a utopia, and Fanny and her two best friends, her lover and her gay lover found a utopia called Libertalia in the English countryside. <laughs> you have to read that yeah. one. That's my favorite book. So I have written utopian fantasies. And when you read Fanny Hackett Jones, you'll see that her two intimates are one straight man, one gay man. Mm. And the gay man is black and speaks perfect Latin. And the straight man survived as a highwayman. That's my most utopian novel. And funny, too. So then, if I'm reading you right, is it in, like, human relation that you see the possibility of a better world? Absolutely. Human relations can morph in a million different ways. But there's always a reactionary contingent that wants to go backward. True. And we have to fight that reaction in ourselves, first of all, and then in our society. We have to understand that the people who want to take us backward are not our friends. Right, exactly. And that we need, we need to have, uh, we need to be fearless enough to change our society. Okay. And when you first published Fear of Flying and people were treating you, you know, like some heretic how how did you respond i mean what was your strategy to i don't know if i had a strategy i i certainly suffered over it now and henry miller used to say to me why don't you take it as a joke erica because he had been treated that way when he published tropic of cancer couldn't get published etc so i had people older writers like Henry Miller, like John Updike, like other poets who love my work and who said, take it as a joke. You know, think of Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman. Look at what they went through. And I have fortunately lived long enough to see it change. Yeah. Was Going, it easy to take it as a joke? Now I do. Yeah. It's easier now. Now I do. I mean, I've gone from being the happy hooker to an icon. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice. Why not? But I think that what saved me is my sense of humor. You know, you have to have a sense of humor if you want to change the world. It is not easy. 
And you think of yeah. all the writers who have killed themselves in despair. Sure. We have to go forward. You know, writers are on the planet to inspire others, to help them move forward. I think that's our, go- our job. Where did you get your sense of humor from? I have no idea. <laughs> so your, your mother, your grandmother were not? Oh, they were. I grew up in a funny family. Okay. And we had um, a dinner table where everyone made jokes. My father was a musician. My mother was an artist. My grandfather was an artist. And people were funny in my family. Sometimes it was the Jewish gallows humor. Sure, yeah. You know, let's laugh before we climb into the, <laughs> you know, the death chamber, mm-hmm. which is a particular kind of humor. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah. And which I find... Uh, which I find myself succumbing to often. But I have a funny family. My daughter, Molly John Fast, has like 250 followers on Twitter because she's so funny. <laughs> and now she, she is writing for the Bulwark um, for many different publications all over the world. She's a passionate feminist. She's passionately anti-Trump. Mm. And she is writing these funny pieces about the Fox News people and, you know, trying... Humor is the best way, I think, to receive that. Yes, I think so. Better than agitprop. Agitprop, nobody Ah. wants to read. It's too boring. Do you think that agit... That's that's a really interesting claim, because I I do wonder about the efficacy of agitprop, and certainly not in the ways that it worked in, like, the 60s and 70s. Well, it bores you, and things that bore you are not going to change the world. You need the humor. You really do need the humor in order to change. What are people afraid of? Right. It's true. People are afraid of change. I mean, those guys who set fire to three black churches in the last week, they're afraid. Yeah. But it doesn't give you permission to kill people. Right. Certainly. You know, fear. But when you have a leader in the White House who plays on that fear. Yeah, who weaponizes fear. It weaponizes it, exactly. It's very hard to go back to being human again. I mean, he, the Trump White House has really fanned the flames of racism. Yeah. Yeah. And prejudice of all sorts. And that's why you, instead of you know just publishing political tracts, have have made art, because because that's the the best way to change people's minds. I think you have to inspire people. Yeah. To find a better world, and humor is a great tool. Yeah. Yes. Of of finding that. Well, thank you so much, Erica, for speaking with thank us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Erica. We've been speaking with Erica John. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books. We've been speaking with Erica Jong, author of The World Began With Yes. Now, we'll turn to our conversation with Susan Choi, author of Trust Exercise. We're thrilled to have Susan Choi here with us today at the LA Times Festival of Books. Susan is the author of five novels, the most recent of which is Trust Exercise, which was just published. 
Her other books include My Education, A Person of Interest, American Woman, and The Foreign Student. And her work has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award, and is the winner of the Penn W.G. Sebald Award and the Asian American Literary Award for Fiction. Thanks for being here, Susan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So your newest novel has a break in the middle where the perspective shifts. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the structure of the novel. Right. It's a funny balancing act because, you know, we're trying both to not, like, signpost Uh the structure uh of the novel and not be coy about it. Okay. Which is hard. I'm doing publicity for a book, I would imagine. It is hard. I mean, well, we've sort of paved this road because we could have just said nothing about it. But instead, because the book is being described kind of out of the gate as taking this different direction, there is something that has to be said. But I don't want to say too much. I was working on the book, and I'd been working on it for quite a while in the world that you start in, the world of the characters of page one. And at a certain point, I just realized that the storytelling in the first part of the book represented just one person's point of view and just one person's version of events and served just one I guess, arrangement of factors and that in any act of storytelling, the choices that are made to tell this story may well be disadvantageous to someone. They may well be advantageous to someone and less advantageous to someone else. And I just one day thought, I'll bet somebody's angry about the way this story is being told. It just sort of struck me all at once that there was very, very likely a person who disagreed with the representation of events as they had been presented up to that point. And that was sort of where the shift in the book began. Wow. That's brave. That's very brave. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't brave so much. It's just kind of a weird thing that occurred to me at lunchtime one day that then took the book in a new direction. Yeah. And the characters who are initially telling the story are high school. It's from the perspective of two lovers in high school. Yeah, the story is about these two young people in high school. It isn't really from one person's perspective as opposed to another's. It's like classic third person, but it definitely chooses certain people to focus on and certain people to marginalize. And that was what got me to thinking like, well, what about the people who are marginalized? Like in any story, like why are some people out on the edge and other people in the middle? Well, something that I was curious about is what brought you to high school? Why set this book in a high school setting and with younger characters? It wasn't a process of thinking of a story and then deciding to set it in a high school. Mm -hmm. The story was in a high school from the very beginning. And in the very beginning, it was just a story. I started writing something that I hoped would be short and sweet. I'm always trying to write things that are short and sweet and that I can finish. And I was between projects. And I thought, oh, you know, it would be really fun to just write a story about a very you know, a very limited set of circumstances because short stories kind of require a stripped-down set of elements or else things spiral out of control and turn into a novel, which is what always happens to me. Originally, I thought, well, this will just be a story about a young couple who don't have their driver's licenses and are kind of struggling to get together. It's a simple problem, a timeless problem. So the story started taking on 
complexity almost immediately. And, um, and that was what was exciting about it. And so I didn't decide to write about high school. I just was interested in this scenario and thought it would be a very simple tale. Uh-huh. And it you, led you astray. You often um, have academic settings in your work. Yeah, I often do. And that's it's, it's definitely been noticed, even by some of my most loving friends, one of whom once said to me, you just can't leave it alone, can you? You just keep returning to the academy. I guess I can't leave it alone. I mean, I've spent much of my life either as a student or as a teacher. I guess the first four years of life, I wasn't a student or a teacher. (laughs) And there might be a year or two in the middle there where I wasn't teaching full time. But this has been the world that I've lived in. And even before I was a student, my father is a teacher. So it's a complicated world that, you know, I know we all occupied at some time or another, but I've occupied it as a daughter, as a student, as a teacher. I've had a lot of evolving thoughts about the different relationships in that world and the different distributions of power in that world. And it it's endlessly interesting to me. And I, I hope I'm able to make it interesting to readers. Yeah. Although I should probably engineer a change of scene at some point. I mean, it's such a great setting because you can also, in terms of calling into question history and literature, I mean, all of those things can be present in a very natural way because people are learning. Yeah, people are learning. People are definitely learning. And, And also the world itself is changing really rapidly and radically right now. And it's been changing all of the norms and values and just the culture of that world is going through... I would say convulsive shifts right now. A lot of them are really, really necessary shifts. But when we look back, when I look back at the assumptions that we were all operating under when I was, say, a graduate student, which wasn't that long ago, they're a totally different set of assumptions from the ones we're operating under now. And in part, that's because the academic environment is kind of like a an overheated version of our larger cultural environment. Like the conversations we're having culturally get articulated in the academic environment sometimes earlier, sometimes at greater length, and sometimes also academia can go and start legislating if it feels as if things need to be done in a more nimble, some would say more overbearing way than our larger society can. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the societal issues we're struggling with, they appear in the academy early and writ larger sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit, I mean, high school is such a great place in which to think about those things because of what's happening to you in high school, where you're emerging into something that is at once idealism, but idealism attenuated by disappointment, right? Because usually in high school, you've had your first relationship that didn't work out, your first like paper that didn't work out, whatever, bad grades, conflict with your parents, right? Mm -hmm. So all these ideals are constantly being challenged. While at the same time, you're also generating new ideals, right? Friendship and love can be like these new worlds that you enter into. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that factored into what made high school a potentially rich place for you to explore themes that, as you're expressing, can be like far, far, far more developed. Right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I started writing about characters who were in high school because I started writing about characters who were in high school without thinking like, oh, this could be advantageous from a storytelling and thematic (laughs) point of view. But because I never start, I don't think there are many writers who embark on the work thinking like, I would like to explore certain themes of power and self-realization. But all that stuff starts coming into it because of all that you said. And also, you know, the fact that high school students are going through what I think is the most 
accepting maybe like babyhood to age four, the most like radically transformative period of our lives as humans, because we go through this much maligned developmental period called puberty, where our bodies and our brains and our voices and our everything, you know, transforms from the form of a child to the form of an adult. That's a crazy thing that we go through. And it is really crazy purely on the chemical biological level. Like it's just this revolution in our existence. Convulsions, as you were saying before. it's, It's like this convulsive process that's also really amazing because we're becoming the people that we are and having to choose all those ideals, like having to suddenly define for ourselves the values that we hold, the judgments that we're going to pass. Like we're Mm. differentiating from our parents and deciding on who we are, but we're also really young. So there are a lot of false starts and a lot of major mistakes and that's all part of the process, but it can be very painful. Yeah. I wanted to ask you because that does seem to be a theme also within the structure of your work that some of your novels feature characters looking back on their past. And that's true that even though you are an adult, moving closer to adulthood, your mind and your idea of what happened to you can change radically from the time you're in your teens and early 20s to when you're older. So if it's not too personal, is there a specific instance from your life that you reflect on now often and see completely differently now? I mean, most of them, actually. <laughs> Sorry. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's just, that's a really interesting dimension of our shared experience for me. I'm always really fascinated by the ways in which I experience continuity as a person, as a self. Obviously, I experience myself over time as me. I'm like, yeah, that was me. But I also don't. Like, I often look back at myself at 14 or myself at 18 or myself even at 38 and think, God, who was that? And I think we all have that. We all have that capacity to find a past self almost strange. The things that that self thought and did and wanted don't actually seem to belong to us anymore. And so that's, it's interesting to me because we make consequential decisions at every stage of our lives. And yet, how do we contend with the fact that a consequential decision we might make in the past suddenly seems like it belonged to somebody we don't know anymore. You know, we're like, who made that choice? Or maybe instances where we thought we had power and then we look back and think, oh, actually, you know, I thought this was an even situation, but it was so completely uneven. Yeah, and that's exactly what's going on in this book is that characters who feel themselves to have a lot of agency and discernment, even though they're teenagers, for them it's like not in spite of, but because they're teenagers, they're like, we're teenagers. We are all grown up now. We understand what we want. Those characters make these choices that to them seem freely made and they seem as if they're made on the basis of exercising good judgment that later later those choices might not just appear to be bad choices but actually not choices at all. Like mm. they might not have even been free choices in the way that you thought that they were. One of the things that really strikes me now that I hear you talk about the book is the how smart the title is trust exercise, which refers to an actual event within the book. But if you think about it in these broader contexts, that part of the story seems to be about the ways in which we learn to trust ourselves and the decisions that we might make, and then later see that trust to be completely unfounded. We shouldn't trust ourselves at all. And then also perhaps in when a reader opens up a book, we trust the story that is usually handed to us. Right. Are there right. ways in which you've been grappling with trust in particular as, a, as an issue? Well, I think that one of the reasons that this book 
started to change direction and change form in the way that it does is pretty directly related to thoughts I was having prior to and during the most pivotal moments of the election in 2016 where our cultural storytelling and our political storytelling were really laid bare for a lot of us. I mean, I think there were credulous listeners and then there were sort of astonished listeners to these stories that appeared to come from a place of authority but were so clearly manipulative or distorted or to the extreme disadvantage of some people versus other people. And just the nature of storytelling, which is, you know, something that I've worked with all my life, started seeming almost sinister to me. And it was hard for those thoughts not to end up trickling down into the storytelling that I was doing, you know, over in my little literary fiction corner, just thinking like, oh, well, I'm just writing a novel. And, and yet at the same time, it's unavoidable to me now to think about the fact that As I said before, you know, the choices that I make in terms of who's at the center of the story and who's at the margin of the story, the choices I make as far as what events are given emphasis and what events are left out, like these are all choices that actually have to do with power. They have to do with who has power and how to perpetuate power. And it was all tied together. Yeah. All that stuff was really tied together. And so I guess I was, to put it more simply, thinking about how we... I think, are almost hardwired to trust the stories that we're told. Even if they're fictional stories, you know, we want to believe in them. That's one of the reasons we love stories so much. I write novels, and everybody knows their novels, but people will say, like, if there's some event that I didn't include, they'll say, but what happened? And I'm like, well, you know, it's not, it's not true, so whatever you imagine. But that's not satisfying, right? Because we want to believe in these stories to some degree. And so it is about how much do you trust the stories you're being told. So one of the things that that makes me interested in is what are some of the stories that you are currently reading or paying attention to or authors that you feel like you, that are sort of talking or writing about these issues in a similar way? The question that you're asking me is taking me to story sources that aren't in the land of literary fiction. That's, that's I mean, fine. I, I think that what I'm preoccupied by it which is what we're all preoccupied by probably right now, is this new election cycle and the competition to have the dominant narrative Mm -hmm. about these issues that are, for the most part, so complicated that even people who spend the better part of their time studying them, even those people are hard-pressed to really understand the issue fully. So how is the general public going to be able to really parse these stories when the experts even are sort of flummoxed. Like, let's take one that's not ours directly, but Brexit. Like, the story of Brexit is such a fascinating set of stories. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating to see the way in which the pre-Brexit vote storytelling is now being torn apart and analyzed and deconstructed and the ways in which all of the same factions are pointing accusatory fingers at each other about the sort of storytelling that preceded the vote. And it's not as if all of those stories are being laid bare because now it's new stories. It's a new set of stories. And in the end, God, you know, how does anyone decide what should actually happen when it's not a set of neutral facts at all? It's a set of really, really incompatible narratives Narratives. that touch on the most inflaming issues of the present. And then, of course, you know, we have our own many, many stories that are like that. And 
to my mind, immigration is the most urgent and distressing yes. source that, of competing stories right now. I think that's a really smart point because currently immigration is being told in a way, personally as an immigrant, I don't, I barely even recognize where it's like, this is nowhere near the actual story of what immigration is, right. what it's right. like, even the sheer process of it. Is that sort of the lines that you're thinking around in yeah, terms of this yeah. kind of storytelling? I mean, there are all these like very recognizable romances that are kind of being deployed in order to convey immigration to the public and then convey the public's assent through the political system. And I happen to buy into one romance, which is that, you know, I'm the daughter of an immigrant. Our country was built by immigrants. Immigration to me is only a good. But I recognize that my position is also one that's grounded on a very, very mythological set of assumptions. I don't think that's actually true. I think that, in fact, numbers show that it always is better. Successive waves of immigration mean more economic development, more productivity. It is always a net positive. Absolutely. No, and I agree with you, but I think... Sorry, I'm I'm not obviously meaning to challenge you. It's just that... What I want to say is I agree with you, but I'm very conscious of the fact that not being an immigration expert and not having statistics like that at my disposal, my belief in immigration as an indisputable good is much more based on my family's story and on the stories that I believe in about our country. And then I always want to be the person who also has all the stats at her disposal. But ultimately, like, for me, it's really ideological. And so it's, that's one way in which I can try to relate to the other side who absolutely believe, regardless of the facts, that immigration is a contagion, an infection, it's an evil, because for some reason the word immigration fills them with fear, where it fills me with a sense of well-being. And that's because of the way I was raised, and because of whose daughter I was, and because of also like a lot of cultural reinforcement of that idea that I grew up with before our cultural conversation changed. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I believe there are facts that actually do tell us a factual story, but that most of us in the political sphere are operating according to like our personal mythos. Does that make sense? I know that I do. Even though I usually like to think like, well, my personal mythos lines me up with the right side. (laughs) Is the right (laughs) mythos. Yes. 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 But I understand that it is, it is a romance that I'm, that I'm loyal to. Maybe this is an obvious question, but with so much thinking about storytelling and different stories that we tell ourselves, does that ever trip you up as then being someone who puts more stories into the world. As successful as fiction can be at conveying ideas and stories, do you ever just feel like, oh, I just want to have the facts and list them? And I mean, that's not yeah. a story, but do you struggle with that in your own writing ever? Yes. Well, I never get so far as struggling with it in my own writing because I'm just not a nonfiction writer, but I do struggle with it in my own thinking about my writing. I spend a lot of time worrying that my writing would like do more good or be more useful if it was nonfiction. You know, I think this is my version of, like, the self-hating fiction writer. Like, oh, you know, what am I doing? But I'm wired to write fiction. It's what I enjoy. And, you know, I have a project right now that isn't finished because I've spent years trying to figure out if it should actually be a nonfiction project. But in my heart, I just don't want to take it in that direction. So, yeah, it's definitely, like, a, a source of personal anxiety and 
and Not conflict. that nonfiction doesn't have its own, you know, mythos and well, exactly. prefabricated narratives woven into exactly. it. Exactly. You and, can't and, avoid it. But. Right. And, you know, and nonfiction is also, it's not as if it's like undiluted fact either. That's yeah. more right. narrative storytelling just exactly. with different conventions. And yeah. That's often what I end up telling myself. I'm like, well. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about nonfiction it. Nonfiction is also in many ways fictional. So exactly. just keep doing what you do. Yes, well, you should. Earlier we had uh, Erica Jong come here and she really thought it was important to not be boring. And nonfiction can, and facts can at times be kind of boring. And yeah, it shouldn't like, be. It, sh- it, it should. Right, it nonfiction should be. is not boring. That's it very true. Yes. I mean, good yeah. nonfiction should be enthralling. And yeah. I've read some nonfiction recently that just, in the middle of it, I think to myself, why would I ever read another novel? Really? You know, because it's so enthralling, so absorbing does all the things that a great novel does mm-hmm. and then also has the benefit of delivering to you like all this information and that's also when I have my greatest doubts about fiction I think oh god <laughs> what am I doing but I love fiction I always come back to it both as a reader and obviously as a writer yeah we've been speaking with Susan Choi author most recently of Trust Exercise thanks for being here thank you You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 